Welcome to Real Leaders Radio, bringing you the story behind the story of the most innovative, authentic leaders we know. And now, here's your host, Sue Heilbronner. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us again at Real Leaders Radio. I'm excited to introduce our guest today. We are really fortunate to have with us Scott Phoenix, who's a co-founder of one of the most interesting companies that exists in the United States right now, or maybe the world. It's Vicarious, and I'm sure he'll tell us all about it. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Thanks for having me, Sue. So the way we kick off this podcast is we love to hear kind of the three-minute life story from the founders we talk to. So over to you. I guess the entrepreneurial life history that I'd like to give is from the start of when I when I first started thinking about AI and, and what what it, what is it that I should do with myself. For me, that happened when I was probably about 19 years old or 20 years old. I realized that I got the most joy out of doing things that were of service to humanity. I was uh, thinking long and hard about, well, what does that look like in terms of a job or a career? And uh, I got interested in artificial intelligence because of all the things that a person could work on, if you actually figure out how to build the first human level AI, then you've solved all of the other problems because you can have the AI then help you to solve any problem that a human could solve. And so that's what got me really interested in, okay, is AI something that could conceivably be built in my lifetime? And then what role could I potentially have in, in creating it? And that's what brought me to the work I'm doing now. The question in my mind was, now do I go become a, a PhD student? Uh, do I start a nonprofit? Do I go to work at another company, a larger company like Google? If you look at the history, so many of the world's greatest and most important inventions have come from entrepreneurs and come from startups. And that seemed like the right vehicle. If you're going to build a revolutionary technology, that seemed like the right vehicle to try and do it in. For me, my journey as an entrepreneur has been about acquiring the skills that I needed and getting to a place where I thought I could really try and build a company to create the first human-level AI uh, and not mess it up too badly. Scott, you've talked to me about AI in the past, and you know, I read some about it, but I'm not nearly as into this issue as you are. I wonder if for our audience, you could boil down what the opportunity is or the problem that Vicarious is focused on. So when you think about artificial intelligence, think about writing a computer program that if it has the same experiences that a human has in life, it learns the same capabilities and can do the same kinds of things in the world that you and I can do. And what that means for us and for our future is that right now, I imagine the average person listening to this podcast has seen between zero and one robot, probably closer to zero robots uh, in the last year of their life, or maybe even the last five or 10 years of their life. Robots aren't really present in today's society. And that's because we don't have software that works like the human mind to be able to control a, a robotic body and use it to accomplish goals in the world. We just don't have that software. And that's the software that we're working on building at Vicarious. And the day we create it is a day when we can have a billion, a hundred billion robots in the world help us do all kinds of things from building houses to driving cars, to treating patients with Ebola, to cleaning up radioactive nuclear waste to the Fukushima reactor. So Scott, you're 19 years old. What is it that turns you on about AI? Answer that. And then I'm really curious, how has your perspective on AI shifted in these intervening years? So when I'm, when I'm 19 years old, the thing that turns me on about AI is that it's, it's humanity's last invention. It's the ultimate thing that you can build, that once you build it, it builds everything else for you. That, in my mind, is the most exciting thing anyone could ever create. I feel incredibly fortunate to be alive at the time in history when someone might create it. 
So your view of this hasn't shifted that much. Obviously, you know quite a bit more about it. You have a lot of people working on it with you, but I, I don't actually know your age, but I think it's over a decade since you were 19. And really, you still hold a very similar vision. Yeah, it's always been about the same ultimate quest of let's let's try and build this first human level AI and let's use it to help humanity thrive. You once alluded to this idea that there are these scary aspects of working on AI. Can you talk a little bit about that and then talk about how you think about those in your leadership role on this challenge? I'd be happy to. So to put it into some context, I imagine you might have seen some headlines recently about how artificial intelligence might take over the world. I'm sure many people listening have seen the Terminator movies or some other movies where artificial intelligence is the villain of the movie. When you look at any invention that's ever been created from the from the invention of fire onwards, there's always an opportunity for it to be used for helpful things and also for harmful things. So a part of creating fire is figuring out how to use it in a way that uh, is safe and cooks your food but doesn't cook your house. Artificial intelligence is no different from other technologies in that way. And it's important fundamentally as we build this new technology that we work to make sure that it does what we want it to do and it does it 100% of the time. And just like we have scientists who are researching how to ensure that our automobiles are safe and how to ensure that the drugs are safe and that there isn't some genetically engineered super virus that takes over the world, it's important that we have some scientists who are thinking about how to make sure the AIs we build are safe. And so I think it's an important it's an important research problem to be working on, but it's also not something that the average person should stay awake at night thinking about. Okay, fair enough. And you know, I know you. You're you're a really ethical guy. You're you're a good guy. Now that you know so much more about this challenge, do you worry about this technology landing in the wrong hands? Not right now. I, I think that it's it's way too early days. Uh, the the technology that could land in the wrong hands today is is technology that can you know, look at a photo and tell you what's in it or play the game of Go. So we're, we're not at the point where this is something that, that anyone should be thinking about who's not a scientist who is pursuing it from a theoretical research perspective. I, I think we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves in that way. What is the day at Vicarious? Since you, how long ago did you start Vicarious? Uh, five and a half years or so. So in the five and a half years, is there just one day or one moment that stands out to you as a true breakthrough moment where you thought, well, we're going we're gonna to really make a massive amount of progress here? Probably the first day I met my co-founder, Dilip George. Because talking to him, I talked to so many different people in the field and, and I'd read, read a ton on the different approaches that were being used. And he had such a unique perspective about what needed to happen to make progress on building the first human level AI. Uh, that for me was really the most exciting thing. And that's why I, I, I really wanted to work with him because his vision of how to create artificial intelligence is, is pretty different. And I think a lot uh, more robust and directed than the visions I've heard from other people who are in the field. And is that what sets you guys apart in terms of your approach to this? There's people, which is one aspect of, I think, what, what makes Vicarious special. So we have a whole lot of incredibly brilliant people in addition to Deleep working on this problem altogether. Uh, we have a very long time horizon to work on the problem uh, because we've had a lot of investment from visionary people like uh, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos. So long time horizon, brilliant people, but also there is this perspective element that we, we talked about a little bit, which is most of the artificial intelligence research work that I read about is about learning these simple mappings between A to B. And that's not what the brain does. Your brain is learning a rich, almost perceptual simulation of the world. 
So you can close your eyes right now and imagine what it would be like to drive a watermelon full of jelly beans to the airport. And you have a, I've just created a rich visual Im imagery inside your mind. And that's something that you and I do very naturally and all humans do very naturally. And we use it to solve problems. And we use it to constantly reconcile what's, what we're experiencing in the world and uh, what we think we should be experiencing in the world. And that's critical for making a robot accomplish anything. And that's not something that that kind of grounded cognition or sensory motor simulation isn't something I've seen a lot of in the broader AI research community. What I'm in awe of uh, with respect to you and this company is just the scale of this problem. And I wonder, Scott, are you are you just the kind of person who, if the scale of the problem weren't this big, it just wouldn't be interesting to you? I've never really thought about it. Um, maybe. I, I think scale is certainly part of what excites me about this work. And this isn't your first startup. So I wonder if you could just share with us a little bit of the lead up in terms of other companies you created going into Vicarious. You know what? Actually, scale is definitely an important part of what makes me excited. Now, now that I think back on the other companies that I that I did, because I did a bunch of other companies and I, I did them not because I was passionate about what the company was making, but because I thought it was a good opportunity to learn a bunch of things and that you know I, I thought that there was a good chance that we'd build a a profitable business around it. Those were okay reasons for starting a company in my mind, but fundamentally. Having a company whose whose core purpose in life is what I'm on fire to do, uh, and wh whose impacts would be really groundbreaking, is something that makes me feel way more alive than any of the things I've done before. Vicarious. So, in addition to learning that scale really matters and something you're on fire about really matters, what else did you learn from the earlier companies you built? So, I'll just sort of walk through a history of the things that I worked on and and some of the lessons I learned from each one. The first company I did when I was about 16. Uh, and it was a content-based internet company that was like The Daily Show, but for video game news. <laughs> and it was a lot of fun. And as a 16-year-old, it was you know what I was interested in at the time. It's hard to predict what news is going to be really interesting. And sorting the news page based on like chronological order doesn't seem as cool as sorting it based on how many votes some things gets. And so I wanted to do this version of our gaming news website that you could that it was completely driven by people upvoting stories, which is now Reddit. But I had no sense of, oh, and what if we applied that to not video game news or like really made that the primary focus? I didn't have a real sense of what were the fundamentals that would make a product successful or make something that people wanted to use. And I wasn't thinking beyond what was kind of fun for me at the time. And so I think that was one of the lessons I had from that very first startup. And then I did a series of other businesses when I was in college that I learned different lessons from. One was a, a startup that was in the medical device space. And I learned a lot about how uh, difficult and Byzantine the, the medical device regulations are. And if you want to do anything that kind of touches the body, uh, it's a huge pain. There was another startup I did that, that involved... Um, like coordinating graduation ceremonies for large universities. <laughs> and it was another a case where the startup made a bunch of money because it was made a product that people wanted to buy, but ultimately it wasn't making, you know, it wasn't making Google levels of money because it was just this small thing. And I think a lesson I learned from that is to really really pick something that that has impact because that matters. And then I did a company through the Y Combinator program back in 2008 called Frogmetrics and we did touch screens for high volume retail stores at point of sale. And this was pre iPad. So we had all of these problems to solve about both hardware and software and internet connectivity because Wi-Fi wasn't as ubiquitous back then. There were just all of these issues that we had to tackle and it was 
really a case where we were running uphill. Uh, and there's no extra points for, 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 for difficulty when you're creating a company. I, I think one of the best companies uh, or some of the best companies ever started are things that are really easy, almost comically easy, and you have no idea from a te- te- technology perspective, and you have no idea that it's just going to be that valuable. Things like Airbnb or even ho- the Am I Hot or Not site. I don't know if you remember that. Sure, but of course. Th- you know, those guys created it in 24 hours, and then it was massive ever since that, and they were earning $20, $30 million a year on that thing they created overnight. But, but, um, but let me just jump in for a sec. Cause you just, yeah. you know, you just talked about not getting points for running uphill, which I love. Sometimes yeah. you actually do get points for running uphill, but probably not in companies. So I, I think, think you do get points for running uphill. And so I, I think there are some examples of that, like, like SpaceX or Vicarious, okay, where you're good. building something that's so hard that no one else can really afford to play that game with you. But in the case of what we were trying to do at Frogmetrics, it wasn't that that we were trying to build like it wasn't that wasn't our decided competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. That oh, we're going to pick we're going to pick curing cancer or inventing a teleporter because it's so hard no one else can figure it out and so our advantage is going to be technology. That would be like a, a a conscious way of choosing let's do the hard thing and let's and let's make it so that no one else can compete with us and create a natural monopoly in that way. I think those kinds of businesses like Vicarious, I think that really makes sense. And there are great companies that are built that way too. Um, but you have to decide up front that that's what you're going to be all about. And we were trying to do too many hard things at the same time. Right. Without a vision that was quite as big as this, something that could right. really excite you. You said you're not terribly worried at this point about sort of speed to market based on uh, capital that you've raised. Uh, you don't seem wildly worried about the scale of the difficulty. In fact, that seems to really turn you on. What are you worried about, if anything, with respect to your company and what does keep you up at night? So I do actually worry about speed, not necessarily to market, but I mean, market is a side effect of doing great research. So I worry about speed because we have a moral imperative to build this invention. And because of the second we do it, it would have tremendous benefits to society. And so every day that we don't have it, there's a a lot of of things that go wrong that wouldn't go wrong if we had really smart AIs to help us. Yeah, I do feel the pressure of of speed. Even though we have time from an investor perspective, we have a yeah. lot of time. I every day I'm worried about how can we go faster? What are the projects we should be focusing on now that we're not focusing on? How do we get more resources behind uh, the things that need to be accelerated. What what teams are blocked on what? That's a constant uh, whisper in my mind. Okay, so I get that. And just to come back. Uh, to be sure I'm right about this. Do you worry about competition? I mean, the argument you just gave is I have a moral imperative to get this to the world because it'll make the world better. Do you care if someone else gets it to the world faster than you do? I think there's two angles on that. So does SpaceX worry about competition? I would say probably not, right? There are no other commercial enterprises that are anywhere close to making SpaceX's level of progress on building a commercial Mars transport system. But the people at SpaceX run like hell because they want to get off the planet Earth. And I think Vicarious is the same way. It's not that we're worried about competitors nipping at our heels. It's that we want to build this and we want to build it yesterday. You've told me once before a little bit of your thinking and how you raised money for this company, which I think was an extremely careful and deliberate thing. I wonder if you could just share some of your philosophy and how you manifested kind of the set of financing partners that you did. I think that the people who invested in Vicarious are all incredibly brilliant. Back in when we started the company, AI was not a common conversation topic like like it is like it might be today. I don't know how many people are talking about it, but I think a lot of people are thinking about AI now that weren't back then. Uh, so the investors that got behind Vicarious were all extremely early to realizing, wow, AI really matters. It's going to be a fundamental enabling technology that powers entire industries 
And it's important that we have smart groups of people focused on solving it in a way that is a fundamental advance over what's happening in academia and what's happening in industry and kind of the the standard day-to-day set of approaches. Those are the things that got people excited about we should back Vicarious because they have this really unique approach that has a chance to be a 100x or a 1,000x over what other people are doing now in deep learning or in other, other techniques for doing AI. What percentage of the investors you wanted to be partners ended up being your partners? Uh, Virtually all of them. Let's transition a little bit. You alluded to team and how important people were to your success. And I I know you well enough to know that that is not just talking talk for you. So how have you thought about building a culture and building a great team at Vicarious? What matters? What tools have you used? What's made the most impact? My wife sent me an email this morning uh, about like the three things that matter in business that I thought was just so, so excellent. It was from Warren Buffett. The three qualities are integrity, intelligence, and energy. If you don't have the first, the other two will kill you. So really, integrity matters most, followed by intelligence and, and energy. And I think that's a great, a great piece of wisdom. Warren Buffett says such smart things. Um, <laughs> so in terms of building a culture at Vicarious, I would say we definitely look for, for those three. And then we're looking for a, a specific set of, of expertises so you need to have a lot of background in the kinds of systems that we're trying to build because it's not an easy problem to work on. And you need to know what's worked and what hasn't in the past. And you also need to be willing to look at architectures that maybe have not gotten enough attention in the mainstream communities. So you need to be willing to be somewhat of a renegade. I mean, I think you use some tools from the conscious leadership group inside your company. Uh, we do use some tools from the conscious leadership group for inside our company. And we also, it's a, it's a process that we're going to be expanding on in the near term future, uh, where we're going to have some orientations that are done with new hires that come on and, and for the whole company. So that's going to be a part of what we do here. Yeah. And how about your own leadership, Scott? Do you work on enhancing your own leadership using outside resources? Absolutely. So I, I put together a, a conscious leadership group for the CEOs of other moonshot startups. And we meet monthly and um, do all of the conscious leadership practices. And we have uh, facilitators who work with us. And we work on applying the values of conscious leadership to our organizations and ourselves. For you, what's the most important value in that construct? It's hard to pick just one. I mean, there's 15 <laughs> choices. Right? They're, all, they're all really important. So you're alluding to the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, which is a yeah. book written by the Conscious Leadership Group. Uh, and they are not a sponsor of this podcast, but you can find out more about that book and order it at conscious.is. For you, what do you think is the biggest edge in your current learning about yourself? biggest edge I'm currently working on is about now. My tendency, my bias, when someone comes to me with a problem is, all right, let's fix it now. Let's do it now. Let's go now. When I'm done eating at a restaurant, I'm looking for the waitress because I'm like, let's get that check now. And that can be helpful, but it's a double-edged sword. And there's sometimes when it would be better served if I could just step back, consider it a little bit longer and be available to what solutions might present themselves in a day or two days or something. I think that that's an edge for me. Scott, one thing leaders tell me now and then is that having an authentic workplace is too time consuming. What's your experience in shooting for true authenticity in your leadership and your culture in terms of time? I guess in our case at Vicarious, so many people here are so much uh, more experienced than I am about matters of of research and technical strategy that there is no one person just makes the call and we do it. 
because that person's so sure and so right. So I, I think there's a lot of, well, what do you think about this? What are the pros and cons? How do we evaluate whether this is the right choice? And for Vicarious, it's, it's much more important to be right than it is to be fast. So as you look at potential team members, obviously brilliance is a key value you need to hire for. How do you balance brilliance against values alignment with stuff like conscious leadership? If you had to make a choice, which which one would edge the other out? I don't think it's an either or. Um, I think people who are brilliant get the importance of being able to communicate well with other brilliant people and being able to not get bogged down in a lot of yeah, yeah, yeah about below the line cultural issues. So I, I think that the two are very compatible. So you're refusing my question, but I can take that and move on. That's fair. Uh, you're not willing to force rank those two characteristics. Yeah, I don't think I don't think we, we I don't know of a time we've ever had to. Great, it's a false dichotomy. Um, if you weren't an entrepreneur, what would you be? So I feel like my life purpose is to help accelerate a positive singularity. And one way I'm doing that right now is by helping to build the first human level artificial intelligence. And another way I'm doing it is by working with other moonshot CEOs and founders on how to, how to become more, better conscious leaders. And I can imagine a whole suite of things that I could do in the neighborhood of helping either personally or through work with other people to accelerate a positive singularity and to, to leverage technology to get humanity to a better future. And so I, it would be something in that neighborhood. What's the hardest conversation you've ever had since you started working on Vicarious? A mix of different axes to think about hardness on. There's been some very hard technical conversations where we're, we're, we're talking about something that's you know six or seven layers deep of abstraction and you really need to be precise technically and, and follow along and keep up. And the people who are in the room with you having the conversation are all extremely capable and when you think about having an intellectual tennis match, they're all hitting the, the ball back just as hard as you're hitting it to them. We have those kinds of hard conversations all the time. In terms of emotionally hard conversations, there have been conversations where we've had about what can we do better, what are we not doing well, and what do we need to improve on? But those haven't felt hard. They've felt like, yeah, you know, this is a great idea. We should do this. Has anyone ever left their job at Vicarious voluntarily? For different reasons. So we had someone who had a family illness in a faraway country, and so they wanted to go be back with their father. We had somebody who wanted to build products and not do research, and they just mm. they didn't like being in a research-focused environment. And then we had another person who actually was even on the other end of the spectrum where they wanted to be a professor, and they wanted to like teach students and publish papers and really, you know, kind of be a, an academic. And so there've been a couple of different people who've left Vicarious over, over the years for all different reasons. I, I don't know that I've had any examples of people leaving because they feel really frustrated with the work culture here or because they don't believe in the problems that we're solving or anything like that. What do you think is the single biggest contributor to your success in building a positive, productive culture has been? I think putting a lot of attention on it. I like that. That makes sense. Scott, is, before we wrap up, is there anything that you think that I should have asked you or that you'd like to talk about? Oh, I do have one thing for all, your, all you listeners out there. So it's really important that for the work that we, we do at Vicarious, we, we find the very best, most uh, brilliant and energetic and committed people to help us on this mission to build what I think is humanity's most important invention. So if you know anyone who you think would be a match for the kind of work we're doing at Vicarious, please send them to vicarious.com. I'd love to talk with them and share more about what we're doing with them. Well, while we're doing that, why don't you just give a couple thoughts on, I mean, we've got criteria include must be brilliant, must be willing to work in a conscious culture. Anything else people should know? 
they should care passionately about building the first artificial general intelligence and they should be familiar with the research that's been done uh, on different ways of doing that. So they should have some experience in neural networks or in probabilistic graphical models or Bayesian inference. There's a whole list of qualifications that you can see at the website that are things that we like when we see in, in candidates. So to start with, if you know what Scott meant by those last three criteria, then you actually do pass the test to go look at the website and see what the other criteria are. Scott, it's been great to talk to you. I'm so inspired, not only by what you're doing, but by how you lead. So thank you for sharing some time with us today. It's great to talk to you, Sue. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us at Real Leaders Radio. To hear other episodes of this podcast or learn more about Sue Heilbronner, visit us at Real Leaders radio.com.